hello everybody! Welcome to the Going Up Cast Halloween Spooktacular. That is the sound of a large tome. A large book that I shall read some passages of for your spooktacular pleasure. This is the new annotated HP Lovecraft collection by Leslie S. Kill Killinger. Sure, Killinger. Introduction by Alan Moore. Um, I've been going, I've been thinking about this for a while. Plus, this is the actual first time I'm reading a book where you can hear me turn the pages. Because it's a physical book in my hands. Um, I've been, I've been thinking about what book to read uh, for your um, for this and while there are pretty much everything that you would want uh, and like I think it's a complete collection to be perfectly honest with you um, it's like 900 pages long but I thought what I would do is read a couple of them because the ones at the beginning are pretty short and um, some of them are pretty good and so I thought I would start there and um, well let's let's just see how it goes so I'm gonna I'm gonna start with the literal first one in the book which is called skipping the forward because who gives a fuck this is a big forward stop it stop it stop there we go fucking Jesus okay the stories here we go fucking 50 pages into the damn thing Alrighty. <laughs> Dagon. I'm writing this under an appreciable mental strain, since by tonight I shall be no more. Penniless and at the end of my supply of the drug which alone makes my life endurable, I can bear the torture no longer, and shall cast myself from this garret window into the squalid street below. Do not think of my slavery to morphine that I am a weakling or a degenerate. When you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess, though never fully realize why it is that I must have forgetfulness or death. It was in one of the most open and least frequented parts of the broad Pacific that the packet of which I was supercargo fell a victim to the German Sea Raider. The Great War was then at its very beginning and the ocean forces of the Hun had not completely sunk to their later degradation so that our vessel was made legitimate prize. Whilst we of her crew were treated with all the fairness and consideration due us as naval prisoners. So liberal indeed was the discipline of our captors that five days after we were taken I managed to escape alone in a small boat with water and provisions for a good length of time. When I finally found myself adrift and free, I had but little idea of my surroundings. Never a competent navigator, I could only guess vaguely by the sun and stars that I was somewhat south of the equator. Of the longitude, I knew nothing, and no island or coastline was in sight. The weather kept fair, and for uncounted days I drifted aimlessly beneath the scorching sun, waiting either for some passing ship or to be cast on the shores of some habitable island. But neither ship nor land appeared, and I began to despair in my solitude upon hearing upon the heaving vastness of the unbroken blue. The change happened whilst I slept. Its details I shall never know, for my slumber, though troubled and dream-infested, was continuous. When at last I awaked, 
it was to discover myself half-sucked into a slimy expanse of hellish black mire, which extended about me in a monotonous undulations as far as I could see, and in which my boat lay grounded some distance away. I thought one might well imagine that my first sensation would be of wonder at so prodigious and unexpected a transformation of scenery. I was in reality more horrified than astonished. For there was in the air and in the rotting soil a sinister quality which chilled me to the very core. The region was putrid with the carcasses of decaying fish and of other less describable things which I saw protruding from the nasty mud of the unending plain. Perhaps I should not hope to convey in mere words the unutter... un... unutterable hideousness that can dwell in absolute silence and barren immensity. There was nothing within hearing and nothing in sight save a vast reach of black slime. Yet the very completeness, completelessness of the stillness and the homo oh my god, damn it, these fucking words. Homogen, fuck, uh, homogeneity, homogeneity, homogeneous, it's homogeneous, what the fuck do you want? Of the landscape oppressed me with nauseating fear. The sun was blazing down from a sky which seemed to me almost black in its cloudless cruelty, as though reflecting the inky marsh beneath my feet. As I crawled into the stranded boat, I realized that only one theory could explain my position. Through some unprecedented volcanic upheaval, a portion of the ocean floor must have been thrown to the surface, exposing regions for which innumerable millions of years had lay hidden under unfathomable watery depths. So great was the extent of the new land which had risen beneath me that I could not detect the faintest noise of the surging ocean, strain my ears as I might. Nor were there any sea fowl to prey upon the dead things. For several hours I sat thinking and brooding in the boat, which lay upon its side and afforded a slight shade as the sun moved across the heavens. As the day progressed, the ground lost some of its stickiness and seemed likely to dry sufficiently for traveling purposes in a short time. That night I slept but little, and the next day I made myself a pack containing food and water, preparatory for an overland journey in search of the vanished sea and possible rescue. On the third morning I found the soil dry enough to walk upon with ease. The odor of fish was maddening, but I was much too concerned with graver things to mind so slight an evil, and set out boldly for an unknown goal. All day I forged steadily westward, guided by a far away hummock which rose higher than any other elevation on the rolling desert. That night I encamped on the following day I still traveled towards the hummock, though that object seemed scarcely nearer than when I had first espied it. By the fourth evening I had attained the base of the mound, which turned out to be much higher than it had appeared from a distance. An intervening valley set it out to sharper relief from the general surface. Too wary to ascend, I slept in the shadow of the hill. I know not why my dreams were so wild that night, but ere the waning and fantastically gibbous moon had risen far above the eastern plain, I was awake in cold perspiration, determined to sleep no more. Such visions I had experienced were too much for me to endure again. In the glow of the moon, I saw how unwise I had been to travel by day. Without the glare of the parching sun, my journey would have cost me less energy. Indeed, I now felt quite able to perform the ascent which had deterred me at sunset. Picking up my pack, I started for the crest of the eminence. I have said that the unbroken monotony of the rolling plain was a source of vague horror to me. I think my horror was greater when I gained the summit of the mound and looked down the other side into an immeasurable pit or canyon, whose black recesses the moon had not yet soared high enough to illuminate. I felt myself on the edge of the world, peering over the rim into a fathomless chaos of eternal night. 
Though my terror ran curious reminiscence of Paradise Lost and of Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realm of darkness. As the moon climbed higher in the sky, I began to see that the slopes of the valley were not quite so perpendicular as I had imagined. Legends and outcroppings of rock afforded fairly easy footholds for a descent, whilst after a drop of a few hundred feet, the declivity became very gradual. Urged on by an impulse which I could not definitely analyze, I scrambled with difficulty down the rocks and stood on the gentler slope beneath, gazing into the Stygian depths, where no lights had yet penetrated. At once, my attention was captured by a vast and singular object on the opposite slope, which rose steeply at a hundred yards ahead of me, an object that gleamed whitely in the newly bestowed rays of the ascending moon. That it was merely a gigantic piece of stone, I soon assured myself but I was conscious of a distinct impression that its contour and position were not but altogether the work of nature. The closer scrutiny filled me with a sensation I cannot express, for despite its enormous magnitude and its position in the abyss which had yawned at the bottom of the sea since the day since the world was young, I perceived beyond a doubt that the strange object was a well-shaped monolith whose massive bulk had known the workmanship and perhaps the worship of living and thinking creatures. Dazed and frightened, yet not without a certain thrill of a scientist or an archaeologist's delight, I examined my surroundings more closely. The moon, now near its zenith, shone weirdly and vividly above the towering steps that hemmed in the chasm, and revealed the fact that a far-flung body of water flowed at the bottom, winding out of sight in both directions, almost lapping my feet as I stood on its slope. Across the chasm, the wavelets washed at the base of the cyclopean monolith, whose surface I could now trace both inscriptions and crude sculptures. The writing was a system of hieroglyphics unknown to me and unlike anything I'd ever seen in books, consisting for, uh, consisting for the most part of conventionalized aquatic symbols such as fishes, eels, octopi, crustaceans, mollusks, whales, and the like. Several characters obviously repeated marine things, or represented marine things, which are unknown to the modern world, but whose decomposing forms I had observed on the ocean-risen plain. It was a pictorial carving, however, that I did most hold me spellbound plainly visible across the intervening water on account of their enormous size, were an array of base reliefs whose subjects would have excited the envy of a Dore. I think that these things were supposed to depict men, at least a certain uh, a certain sort of men, though the creatures were shrewd, uh, disporting like fishes in water of some marine grotto, or paying homage at some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves as well. Of their faces and forms I dare not speak in detail, for the mere resemblance or remembrance of makes me grow faint. Grotesque beyond the imagining of a Poe or a Bueller, they were damnable human in general outline despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy bulging eyes, and other features less pleasant to recall. Curiously enough, they seem to have been chiseled badly out of proportion with their scenic background, for one of the creatures was shown in the act of killing a whale representing as represented as but little larger than himself. I remarked, as I say, their grotesqueness and strange size, but in the moment decided that there were merely the imaginary gods of some primitive fishing or seafaring tribe, some tribe whose last descendants had perished eras before the first ancestor of Pilttown or Neanderthal man was born. Awestruck at this unexpected glimpse into the past beyond the conception of most daring anthropologists, I stood musing while the moon cast queer reflections on the silent channel before me. Then suddenly I saw it. With only a slight churning to mark its rise to the surface, the thing slid into view above the dark waters, vast, polyphemus-like and loathsome. It darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith, 
at which it flung its gigantic scaly arms while the while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds. I think I went mad then. Of my frantic ascents up the slope and cliff, of my delirious journey back to the stranded boat, I remember little. I believe I sang a great deal and laughed oddly when I was unable to sing. I have indistinct recollections of a great storm some time after I reached the boat. At any rate, I know I heard the peals of thunder and other tones which nature utters only in her wildest moods. When I came out of the shadows, I was in San Francisco Hospital, brought thither by the captain of the American ship which had picked up my boat in mid-ocean. In my delirium, I had said much, but found my words had been given scant attention. Of any land upheaval in the Pacific, my rescuers knew nothing, nor did I deem it necessary to insist upon a thing which I knew they could not believe. Once I sought out a celebrated anthologist and amused him with peculiar questions regarding ancient Philistinian legend of Dagon, the fish god. But soon perceiving that he was hopelessly conventional, I did not press my inquiries. It was at night, especially when the moon is gibbous and waning, that I see the thing. I tried morphine, but the drug has only given transcendent circius, 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 and has drawn me into its clutches as a hopeless slave. So now I am to end it all, having written a full account of the information or contemptuous amusement for my fellow man. I often ask myself if I could not all, if uh, it could not all have been a pure phantasm, a mere freak of fever, as I lay sun-stricken and raving in the open boat after my escape from the German man-o-war. This I ask myself. Whatever does there come before me a hideous, vivid vision in reply, I cannot think of a deep sea without shuddering at nameless things that may at this very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed, worshipping their ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likeness on submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. I dream of a day where they may rise above the billows to drag down their reeking talons to the remnants of puny war exhausted mankind. Of a day where the land shall sink the dark ocean floor shall ascend amidst the universal pandemonium. The end is near. I hear a noise at the door as some immense slippery body lumbering against it. It shall not find me. God, that hand. The window. The window! Narlathotep. I do not recall distinctly when it began, but it was months ago. The general tension was horrible. To a season of political and social upheaval was added a strange and brooding apprehension of hideous physical danger, a danger widespread and all-embracing, such a danger as may be imagined only in the most terrible phantasms of the night. I recall that people went about pale with worried faces, and whispered warnings and prophecies which no one dared consciously repeat or acknowledge to himself that he had heard. A sense of monstrous guilt was upon the land, and out of the abscesses between the stars swept chill curtains that made men shiver in dark and lonely places. There was a demonic alteration in the sequences of seasons. The autumn heat lingered fearsomely, and everyone felt the world and perhaps the universe had passed from the control of known gods or forces to that of gods or forces which were unknown. And then it was that Nyarlathotep came out of Egypt. Who he was, no one could tell. He was of the old native blood and looked like a pharaoh. The fellahin knelt when they saw him, yet could not say why. He said he had risen up out of the blackness of 27 centuries, that he heard messages from places not on this planet. 
Into the lands of civilizations came Nyarlith Hotep. Swarthy, slender, and sinister, always buying strange instruments of glass and metal, and combining them in instruments yet stranger. He spoke much of the sciences, of electricity and psychology, yet gave exhibitions of powers which sent his spectators away speechless, yet which swelled his fame to exceeding magnitude. Men advised one another to see Nyarlath Hotep and shuddered. And where Nyarlath Hotep went, the rest vanished, for small hours were rent for the screams of nightmares. Never before had the screams of nightmare been such a public problem. Now the wise men almost wished they could forbid sleep in small hours, that the shrieks of cities might less horribly disturb the pale, pitying moon as it glimmered on green waters gliding under bridges and old steeples crumbling against a sickly sky. I remember when Yarlathotep came to my city, the great, old, terrible city of unnumbered crimes. My friend had told me of him and of the impelling fascination and allurement of his revelations, and I burned with eagerness to explore his uttermost mysteries. My friends say they were horrible and impressive beyond my most fevered imaginings. That what was thrown on a screen in a darkened room prophesied things none but Nyarlathotep dared prophesy. And in that, in that, in the sputter of his sparks, there was taken from men that which had never been taken before, yet which shrewd only in the eyes. And I heard, and hinted abroad, that those who knew Nyarlathotep looked upon sights which others saw not. It was in the hot autumn that I went through the night, the restless crowds, to see Nyarlathotep, through the stifling night and upon the endless stairs into the choking room. And shadowed on a screen, I saw hooded forms amidst ruins and yellow evil faces peering from behind fallen monuments. And I saw the world battling against blackness, against waves of destruction from ultimate space, Whirling, churning, struggling around the dimming, cooling sun. Then the sparks played amazingly around the heads of the spectators, and hair stood up on the end, while shadows more grotesque than I can tell came out and squatted on their heads. And when I, who was colder and more scientific than the rest, mumbled a trembling protest about imposture and static electricity, Nyarlathotep drove us all out down the dizzying stairs into the damp, hot, and deserted midnight streets. I screamed aloud that I was not afraid, I could never be afraid. The others screamed with me for solace. We swear to one another, and the, the city was exactly the same, it's still alive. And when the electric lights began to fade, we cursed the company over and over again and laughed at the queer faces we'd made. I believe we felt something coming down from the greenish moon, for when we began to depend upon its light, we drifted into curious involuntary formations and seemed to know our destinations, though we dared not think of them. Once we looked at the pavement and found the blocks loose and displaced by grass, would scarce a lion of rusty metal to shrew where the tramways had run. And again we saw a tram car, lone, windowless, dilapidated, almost on its side. When we gazed around the horizon, we could not find the third tower by the river, and noticed that the silhouette of the second tower was ragged at the top. Then we split up the narrow columns, each of which seemed drawn in different directions. One disappeared in a narrow alley to the left, leaving only the echo of a shocking moan. Another filled down a weed-choked subway entrance following with a laughter that was mad. My own column was sucked towards the open con country, and presently I felt a chill, which was not of the hot autumn. For as we stalked out on the dark moor, we beheld around us the hellish moon glitter of evil snows. Trackless, inexplicable snows swept asunder in one direction only, where lay a gulf all the blacker for its glittering walls. And the column seemed very thin indeed, as it plodded dreamily into the gulf, I lingered behind, 
for the black rift in the green lit in snow was frightful, and I thought I heard the reverberations of a disquieting wail as my companions vanished, but my power to linger was slight. As if beckoned by those who had gone before, I half floated between the titanic snowdrifts, quivering and afraid into a sightless vortex of the unimaginable. Screamingly sentient, dumbly delirious, only the gods that were can tell. A sickened, sensitive shadow writhing its hands that are not hands, and whirled blindly past ghastly midnights of rotten creations, corpses of dead worlds with sores that were cities, carnal winds that brushed the pallid stars and made them flicker low. Beyond the world's vague ghost of monstrous things, have seen columns of unsanctified temples that rest on nameless rocks beneath space and reach up to a dizzying vacuum above the spheres of light and darkness. And through this revolting graveyard of the universe, the muffled, maddening beating of drums and the thin, monotonous whine of blasphemous flutes from inconceivable, unlightened chambers beyond time, the detestable pounding and piping whereunto dance slowly, awkwardly, and absurdly the gigantic, tenebrous, ultimate gods, the blind, voiceless, mindless gargoyles whose soul is Nyarlathotep. Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying the spooky Lovecraft stories so far. We've got two more fantastic tales of the macabre for us to digest and sink our teeth upon. But first, I wanted to do a little bit of catching up, because hey, it's been a minute. It has been a fair amount of time since we since we did the old chatterooning. And, uh, boy, you know, I've got some fun stuff I want to talk about. I'm going to be real quick so we can get back to the fun stories. But I did want to draw your attention to a couple of things. Number one, uh, with the audiobooks that have already been released, mainly Harry Potter, I am working on what I have called Mega Chapters. And essentially what these are are enormous audio files of multiple chapters so that when you're listening to the audiobooks, you do not need to go back to the site for each individual chapter and click on it multiple times. As of recording this right now, I've only done the first two Harry Potter audiobooks, but basically what you'll do is you'll go to, you know, goingupcast.com forward slash audiobooks forward slash book one or whichever book you want. And then if you scroll down to the very bottom past chapter 17, you will see mega chapters followed by the number of chapters you will find within that file. Um, each file is about an hour and a half to two hours long. And with book one, you can listen to the entirety of book one in four audio files rather than 17. So you only need to go back to the website four times versus 17 times. So the idea is that it's easier to listen to. You have to interact with the website less often, and then you can just kind of play in the background. That's the idea, at least. I'm working on doing it for all of them. Um, the only catch is that the massive file size means the audio quality might take a little bit of a hit uh, in order for it to actually go up on the site. So if you want the best audio experience you can get, you'll have to listen to the books by chapter to chapter. But if you don't mind the audio, personally, I think it sounds basically the same. Um, then you can listen to the mega chapters and interact with the site a little less often and still get the entire audiobook experience, which I thought was pretty too cool. Number two, I'm working on merchandise for the uh, for the website, looking at mug designs, looking at t-shirts, that sort of stuff. Um, I have absolutely no ETAs on when any of that will go up. I'm in like the super early preliminary phase of actually figuring that shit out. 
in terms of what I want the shirts to say, what I want to be on the mugs, providers, and how I'm actually going to get the physical stuff made, all that stuff. Um, but I'm working on it. It's coming down the pipeline. I think that'd be very cool to be able to throw up on the store actual physical, tangible goods that you could, you know, partake in the purchasing of, which is all very exciting. And the other piece of news that I wanted to share is the audio, not the audiobook, um, the Patreon will be moving to a per episode format rather than per month. Reason being is I don't want to charge people for a month when no podcast episode went up. Um, that being said, I'm pretty much going to retool the whole fucking Patreon thing to more reflect the audiobook work than the podcast work because now with a chapter going up every day with the audiobooks, this is very much more become an audiobook um, kind of creative endeavor than a podcast endeavor. So I wanted to restructure the Patreon to further reflect the true artistic goal of what I'm trying to accomplish here. So all that will be more readily explained in a Patreon post coming down the pipeline. Um, and I will probably let y'all know through social media, especially on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash going upcast for all that fun stuff. Um, but since it's been a long time since we've done any housekeeping, I wanted to do a little bit here in this episode. Also, this is episode 69. What's up? Nice. Anyway, thank you for indulging my housekeeping. Let us get back to the Lovecraftian adventure. The Nameless City. When I drew nigh the Nameless City, I knew it was accursed. I was traveling in a parched and terrible valley under the moon, and afar I saw it protruding uncannily above the sands as part of a corpse that may protrude from an ill-made grave. Fear spoke from the age-worn stones of this hoary survivor of the deluge, this great-grandmother of the eldest pyramids, and in a viewless aura repelled me and bade me retreat from the antique and sinister secrets that no man should see, and no man else had ever dared to see. Remote in the desert of Arabia lies the nameless city, crumbling and inarticulate, its low walls nearly hidden by the sands of uncounted ages. It must have been before thus before the first it must have been thus before the first stones of Memphis were laid, while the bricks of Babylon were yet unbaked. There is no legend so old as to give it a name, or to recall that it was ever alive, but it is told in of whispers around campfires and muttered about by grandmas and tents of of sheiks so that all the tribes shun it without wholly knowing why. It was of this place that Abdul Azharad, the mad poet, dreamed of the night before he sang his inexplainable couplet, that, not, that is not dead, which can eternally lie, and with strange eons even death may die. I should have known that the Arabs had good reason for shunning the nameless city, the city told of in strange tales but seen by no living man, Yet I defied them and went into untrodden wastes with my camel. I alone have seen it, and that is why no other faces bear such hideous lines of fear as mine. Why no other man shivers so horribly when the night winds rattle the windows. When I came upon it, in the ghastly stillness of unending sleep, it looked at me, chilly from the rays of a cold moon amidst the desert's heat. And as I returned its look, I forgot my triumph at finding it, and stopped still with my camel to wait for the dawn. For hours I waited, till the east grew gray and the stars faded and the gray turned to rosa light edged with gold. I heard a moaning and saw a storm of sand stirring among the antique stones through the sky. It was clear, and the vast reaches of the desert still. 
Then suddenly above the desert's firmament came the blazing edge of the sun. Seen through the tiniest sandstorm which was passing away, in my fevered state I fancied that for some remote death there came a crash of musical metal to hail the fiery disc as Memnon hails it from the banks of the Nile. My ears rang and my imagination seethed as I let my camel slowly across the sand to the unvocal stone place, that place too old for Egypt and Moreau to remember, that place which I alone of living men had seen. In and out amongst the shapeless foundations of houses and palaces I wandered, finding never a carving or inscription to tell of those men, if men they were, who built the city and dwelt therein so long ago. The antiquity of the spot was unwholesome, and I longed to encounter some sign or device to prove that the city was indeed fashioned by mankind. There were certainly proportions and dimensions in the ruins which I did not like. I had with me many tools and dug much within the walls of the obliterated edifices, but progress was slow and nothing significant was revealed. When night and the moon returned, I felt a chill wind which brought new fear, so I did not dare to remain in the city. As I went outside the antique walls to sleep, a small, sighing sandstorm gathered behind me, blowing over the gray stones, though the moon was bright, and most of the desert still. I awaked just at dawn from the pageant of horrible dreams, my ears ringing as if for some metallic peal. I saw the sun peering readily through the last gusts of a little sandstorm that hovered over the nameless city, and marked the quietness of the rest of the brooding landscape. Once more I ventured within those brooding ruins that swelled beneath the sand like an ogre under a coverlet and again dug vainly for relics of the forgotten race. At noon I rested, and in the afternoon I spent much time tracing the walls and the bygone streets and the outlines of the nearly vanished buildings. I saw that the city had been mighty indeed, and wondered at the source of its greatness. To myself I pictured all the splendor of an age so distant that Chaldea could not recall it, and though the Sarneth of the Doom, and thought of the Sarneth of Doom, that stood in the land of Nar when mankind was young, and of Ib, that was car uh, carven of gray stone before mankind existed. All at once I came upon a place where the bedrock rose stark through the sand and formed a low cliff. And here I saw with joy what seemed to promise further traces of the antediluvian people. Hewn rudely on the face of the cliff was the unmistakable facades of several small squat rock houses or temples, whose interiors might preserve many secrets of ages too remote for calculations. Those sandstorms have long since effaced any carvings which have been made outside. Very low and sand-choked were all of the dark apertures near me, but I cleared one with my spade and crawled through it, carrying a torch to reveal whatever mysteries it might hold. When I was inside, I saw that the cavern was indeed a temple, and beheld plain signs of a race that had lived and worshipped before the desert was a desert. The primitive altars and pillars and uh, niches, all curiously low, were not absent. And though I saw no sculptures nor freca, what is that, frecos? I guess, yeah. There were many singular stones clearly shaped into symbols by artificial means. The lowness of the chiseled chamber was very strange, for I could hardly more than kneel upright, but the area was so great that my torch shrewed only part, of a of only part at a time. I shuddered oddly in some of the far corners, for certain Cultures and stones suggested forgotten rites of terrible, revolting, inexplicable nature that made me wonder what manner of men could have made and frequented such a temple. When I had seen all the place contained, I crawled out again, avid to find, avid to find what the other temples might yield. Night had now approached, yet the tangible things I had seen made curiosity stronger than fear, so that I did not flee from the long moon-cast shadows that had daunted me when I first saw the nameless city. 
and the twilight had cleared another aperture and with a new torch crawled into it, finding more vague stones and symbols, though nothing more definite than the other temple had contained. The room was just as low, but much less broad, ending in a very narrow passage crowded with obscure and cryptographical shrines. About these shrines I was prying when the noise of the wind and my camel outside broke through the stillness and drew me forth to see what could have frightened the beast. The moon was glimmering, gleaming vividly over the primeval ruins, lighting a dense cloud of sand that seemed blown by a strong yet decreasing wind from some point beyond, along the cliff ahead of me. I knew it was this chilly sandy wind which had disturbed the camel. I was about to lead him to a place of better shelter when I chanced to glance up and saw that there was no wind atop the cliff. This astonished me and made me fearful again. But I immediately recalled the sudden local winds I had seen and heard before sunrise and sunset and judged it was a normal thing. I decided that it came from some rock fissure leading into a cave, and that watched the troubled sand to trace um, it to its source, soon perceiving that it came from the black orifice of a temple long, a long distance south of me, almost out of sight. Again, the choking sand cloud. I plotted against the choking sand cloud. I plotted toward this temple, which, as I neared, it loomed larger than the rest and shrewed the, a doorway far less clogged with caked sand. I would have entered had not for the terrific force of icy wind almost quenched my torch. It poured madly out of the dark door, sighing uncannily as it ruffled the sand and spewed about the weird runes. Soon it grew fainter, and the sand grew more and more still, so finally all was at rest again. But a presence seemed stalking among the spectral stones of the city. When I glanced at the moon, it seemed to quiver as though mirrored through unquiet waters. I was more afraid than I could explain but not enough to dull my thirst for wonder. So as soon as the wind was quite gone, I crossed into the dark chamber from which it had come. This temple, I had fancied from the outside, was larger than either of those I had visited before, and was presumably a natural cavern, since it bore winds from some region beyond. Here I could stand quite upright, saw that the stones and altars were as low as those in the other temples. On the walls and roof, I beheld for the first time some traces of pictorial art of the ancient race, curious curling streaks of paint that almost faded and crumbled away. And on two of the altars, I saw rising with excitement a maze of well-fashioned, curvinular carvings. As I held my torch aloft, it seemed to me that the shape of the roof was too regular to be natural, and I wondered what prehistoric cutters of stone had first worked upon. Their engineering skills must have been vast. Then brighter flare of the fantastic flame shewed me that for which I had been seeking, the opening of the remorter abscesses, abysses, whence the wind had suddenly blown. And I grew faint when I saw that it was a small and playful artificial door chiseled in the solid rock. I thrust my torch within, beholding a black tunnel with the roof arching low over a rough flight of very small, numerous, and steeply descending steps. I shall always see those steps in my dreams, for I came to learn what they meant. At the time, I hardly knew whether to call them steps or mere footholds in the precipitous descent. Man, some of these fucking words. My mind was whirling with mad thoughts, and the words and warnings of Arab prophets seemed to float across the desert from the lands that men known to the nameless city that men dared to not to know. As I hesitated, or yet I hesitated only a moment before advancing through the portal and commencing the climb, cautiously down the steep passage, feet first, as though on a ladder. It is only in the terrible phantasms of drugs and delirium that any other man can have had such a descent as mine. The narrow passage led indefinitely down, 
like some hideous haunted well, the torch I held above my head could not light the unknown depths towards which I was crawling. I lost track of the hours and forgot to consult my watch, though I was frightened when I thought of the distance I must be traversing. There were changes of directions and of steepness. Once I came a long low level once I came to a long low level passage, when I had to wriggle free first along the rocky floor, holding my torch at arm's length beyond my head. The place was not high enough for kneeling. After that were more of the steep steps, and I was still scrambling down interminably when my failing torch died out. I do not think I noticed it at the time, for when I did notice it, I was still holding it high above me as if it were ablaze. I was quite unbalanced for I was quite unbalanced with that instinct for a strange oh, man. Sorry. I'm getting excited. <clears throat> I was quite unbalanced with that instinct for the strange and the unknown which had made me the wanderer upon earth and a haunter of far ancient and forbidden places. In the darkness there flashed before my mind fragments of my cherished treasury of demonic lore, sentences from Al-Zharad, um, the mad Arab, the paragraphs from the apocryphal nightmares of Damascus, and infamous lines from the delirious image du monde of Gathera de Metz. I repeated queer extracts and muttered of Ephrasiab and the demons that floated with him down the Oxus, later chanting over and over again a phrase from one of Lord Dustiny's tales, the unreverberant blackness of the abyss. Once when the descent grew amazingly steep, I recited something in a sing-song from Thomas More until I feared to recite more. The reservoir of darkness black, as witches' cauldrons are when filled. With moon drugs in the eclipse distilled, leaning to look if foot might pass. Down through the chasm I saw beneath, as far as vision could explore the jetty sides as smooth as glass, looking as if just vanished over. With that dark pitch, the sea of death throws out upon its slimy shores. Time had quite ceased to exist when my feet felt again the level floor. I found myself in a place slightly higher than the rooms in the two smaller temples, now so incalculably far above my head. I could not quite stand, but I could kneel upright. In the dark, I shuffled and crept hither and thither at random. I soon knew I was in a narrow passage whose walls were lined with cases of wood having glass fronts. As in the Paleozoic and the abysmal places I felt of such things as polished wood and glass, I shuddered at the possible implications. The cases were apparently ranged along each side of the passage at regular intervals and were oblong and horizontal, hideous life-like coffins and shapes and sizes. When I tried to move two or three for further examination, I found them to be firmly fastened. I saw that the passage was a long one, so floundered ahead rapidly in the creeping run that would have seemed horrible had any eyes watched me in the blackness, crossing from side to side occasionally to feel my surroundings and be sure the walls and rows of cases still stretched on. Man is so used to thinking visually that I almost forgot the darkness of pitchery to the endless corridor of wooden glass in a low-studded monotony as though I saw it. And then in a moment of indescribable emotion, I did see it. Just when my fancy merged into real sight, I cannot tell. There came a gradual glow ahead, and all at once I knew that I saw the dim outlines of the corridors and the cases revealed by some unknown subterranean phosphorescence. For a little while, all was exactly as I had imagined it, since the glow was very faint. But as I mechanically kept on stumbling ahead into stronger light, I realized that my fancy had been but feeble. This hall was no relic of crudity like the temples in the city above, but a monument of the most magnificent and exotic art. Rich 
vivid, and daringly fantastic designs and pictures formed a continuous scheme of mural paintings whose lines and colors were beyond description. The cases were a strange golden wood with fronts of exquisite glass and contained the mummified forms of creatures outreaching in grotesqueness the most chaotic dreams of man. To convey any idea of these monstrosities is impossible. They were of the reptile kind, with body lines suggesting sometimes the crocodile, sometimes the seal, but more often nothing of which either the naturalist or the paleontologist ever heard. In size, they approximated a small man, and their four legs bore delicate and evidently flexible feet, curiously like human hands and fingers. But strangest of all were their heads, which presented a contouring violate a contour violating all known biological principles. To nothing can such things be well compared. In one flash, I thought comparisons had varies as the cat, the bulldog, the mythic satyr, and the human being. Not Jove himself had so colossal and protuberant a forehead. Yet the horns and noselessness and the alligator-like jaw placed the thing outside all established categories. I baited for a time on the reality of the mummies, half suspecting they were artificial idols, but soon decided they were indeed some paleogene species. Paleogene? Paleogene. Paleogene species. Sorry. It's a period in uh, historical time. Which had lived when the nameless city was alive. To crown their grotesqueness, most of them were gorgeously enrobed in the costliest of fabrics and lavishly laden with ornaments of gold, jewels, and unknown shining metals. The importance of these crawling creatures must have been vast, for they held first place among the wild designs of the frecoed walls and ceilings. With matchless skill had the artists drawn them into a world of their own, wherein they had cities and gardens fashioned to suit their dimensions. They could not uh, but think that their pictured histories were allegorical, perhaps shewing the progress of the race that worshipped them. These creatures, I said to myself, were to the men of the nameless city what the she-wolf was to Rome, or some totem beast is to the tribes of Indians. Holding this view, I thought I could trace roughly a wonderful epic of the nameless city, the tale of a mighty seacoast metropolis that ruled the world before Africa rose out of the waves, and of its struggles as the sea shrank away and the desert crept into the fertile valley that held it. I saw its wars and triumphs, its troubles and defeats, and afterwards terrible fights against the desert when thousands of its people, here represented in allegory by the grotesque reptiles, were driven to chisel their way down through the rocks into some marvelous manner to another world whereof their prophets had told them. It was all vividly weird and realistic, and its connection with the awesome descent I had made was unmistakable. I even recognized the passages. As I crept along the corridor, towards the brighter light I saw later stages of the painted epic, the leave-taking of the race, leave-taking of the race that had dwelt in the nameless city in the valley around them for ten million years, the race whose souls shrank from quitting scenes their bodies had yet unknown so long, where they had settled as nomads in the earth's youth, hewing into the virgin rock those primal shrines at which they had never ceased to worship. Now that the light was better, I studied the pictures more closely, and remembering that the strange reptiles must represent the unknown men, pondering upon the customs of the nameless city, Many things were peculiar and inexplicable. The civilization, which included a written alphabet, had seemingly risen into a higher order than those immeasurably later civilizations of Egypt and Chaldea, yet were curious omniscience. I could, for example, find no pictures to represent death or funeral customs, save such were related to war, violence, and plagues, and I wondered at the um, reticence shown concerning natural death. It was as though an idol of an ideal of earthly immortality and to foster as a cheering illusion. Sorry, I need to take a sip of tea because this one is much longer than I thought. 
Still nearer the end of the passage were painted scenes of utmost picturesqueness and extravagance. Contrasted views of the nameless city and its desertion and growing ruin, and of the strange new realm for paradise to which the race had hewn its way through the stone. In these views, the city and the desert valley were shown always by moonlight, a golden nimbus hovering over the fallen walls and half revealing the splendid perfection of former times, shown spectacularly and elusively by the artist. The paradisial scenes were almost too extravagant to be believed, portraying a hidden world of eternal day filled with glorious cities and ethereal hills and valleys. And at the very last, I saw, I thought I saw signs of an artistic anticlimax. Paintings were less skillful and much more bizarre than even the wildest of the earlier scenes. They seemed to record a slow decadence, decadence of the ancient stock coupled with a growing ferocity towards the outside world from which it was driven by the desert. The forms of the people, always represented by the scaled reptiles, appeared to have been gradually wasting away, though their spirits, always shown hovering above the runes by moonlight, gained in proportion. Emanciated priests displayed as reptiles in ornate robes, cursed the upper air and all who breathed it. And one final terrible scene showed a primitive looking man, perhaps a pioneer of ancient Irem, the city of pillars, torn to pieces by members of the elder race. I remember how the Arabs feared the nameless city and was glad that beyond this place the gray walls and ceiling were bare. As I viewed the pageant of mural history, I had approached very closely the end of the low ceiling hall and was aware of the great gate through which came all the illuminating phosphorescence. Creeping upon it, I cried aloud in transcendent amazement as what lay beyond. For instead of other and brighter chambers, there was only an inimitable void of, un of uniform radiance, such as one might fancy when gazing down from the peak of Mount Everest upon a sea of sunlit mist. Beyond me was a passage so cramped I could not stand upright in it. Before me was an infin infinity of subterranean effluentions. Effulgenants. Effulgence? Effulgence. Let's go with that. Oh man, this is a long one. Reaching down from the passage into the abyss was the head of a steep flight of steps. Small, numerous steps like those in the black passage I had traversed, but after a few feet, the glowing vapors concealed everything. Swung back open against the left hand wall of the passage was a massive door of brass, incredibly thick and decorated with fantastic bas reliefs, which could, if closed, shut the whole inner world of light away from the vaults and passages of rock. I looked at the steps, and for the noise dared uh, not try them. I touched the open brass door and could not move it. Then I sank prone to the stone floor, my mind aflame with prodigious reflections, which not even a deathlike exhaustion could banish. As I lay still with closed eyes, free to ponder many things I had lightly noted to in the frecos came back to me with new and terrible significance, scenes representing the nameless city in its heyday, the vegetation of the valley around it and then the distant lands with which its merchants traded. The allegory of crawling creatures puzzled me by its universal prominence, and I wondered that it should be so closely followed by a picture history of such importance. And the frecos of the nameless city had been shown in the proportions fitted to the reptiles. I wondered what its real proportions and magnificence had been, and reflected a moment of certain oddities I had noticed in the runes. I thought curiously, of the lowless of the primal temples, and of the underground corridor, which were doubtless hewn thus out of deference to the reptile deities there honored. Though it perforce reduced the worshippers to crawling. Perforce? Ah, fuck. Perhaps their very rites had involved a crawling in imitation of the creatures. No religious theory, however, could easily explain what the level passages in that awesome descent should be as low as the temples. 
or lower since the one I couldn't since one could uh, not even kneel in it. As I thought of the crawling creatures whose hideous mummified forms were so close to me, I felt a new throb of fear. Mental associations are curious, and I shrank from the ideas that, except for the poor primitive man torn into pieces in last painting, mine was the only human form amidst the many relics and symbols of primordial life. But as always in my strange and, revo and roving existence, Wonder soon drove out the fear, for the luminous abyss and what it might contain presented a problem worthy of the greatest explorer. That weird world of mystery lay far down that flight of peculiar small steps I could not doubt. I had hopes to find there those human memories or memorials which the painted corridor had failed to give. The freckos that pictured unbelievable cities, hills, and valleys in this lower realm and my fancy dwelt on the rich and colossal ruins that awaited me. My fear indeed concerned the past rather than the future. Not even the physical horror of my position in that cramped corridor of dead reptiles and antediluvian freckos, miles below the world I knew and faced by another world of eerie light and mist could match the lethal dread I felt at the abysmal antiquity of the scene and its soul. An anxiousness so vast in measurement and feeble, um, as feeble seemed to leer down from the primal stones and rock-hewn temples in the nameless city, while the very latest of the astounding maps in the Frecos showed oceans and continents that man had forgotten, with only here and there some vague, familiar outline. What could have happened to the geological aeon since the painting ceased and the death-hating race resentfully succumbed to decay? No man might say. Life had once teemed in these caverns and in its luminous realms beyond. Now I was alone with vivid relics, and I trembled to think of the countless ages through which these relics had been kept a silent and deserted vigil. Suddenly, there came another burst of that acute fear which had intermittently seized me ever since I saw the terrible valley in the nameless city under a cold moon. Despite my exhaustion, I found myself staring frantically, starting frantically to a sitting position and gazing back along the black corridor towards the tunnels that rose out to the outer world. My sensations were much like those which had made me shun the nameless city at night and were as inexplicable as they were poignant. In another moment, however, I received a still greater shock in the form of a definite sound, first which had broken the utter silence of those tomb-like depths. It was a deep, low moaning, as if of a distant throng of condemned spirits. It came from the direction in which I was staring. Its volume rapidly grew, till soon it reverberated frightfully through the low passage, and at the same time I became conscious of an increasing draft of cold air, likewise flowing from the tunnels and the city above. The touch of this air seemed to restore my balance, and I instantly recalled the sudden gusts which had risen around the mouth of the abyss each sunset and sunrise, one of which had indeed served to reveal the hidden tunnels to me. I looked at my watch and saw the sunrise was near, so braced myself to resist the gale which was sweeping down to its cavernous home as it had swept forth that evening. My fear again waned since the natural phenomenon tended to dispel broodings over the unknown. More and more madly poured the shrieking, moaning night wind into that gulf of the inner earth. I dropped prone again and clutched vainly at the floor for fear of being swept bodily through the open gate in that phosphorescent abyss. Such fury I had not expected. And as I grew aware of the actual slipping of my form towards the abyss, I was beset by a thousand new terrors in apprehension and imagination. The malignancy of the blast awakened incredible fancies. Once more I compared myself shudderingly to the only other human image in that frightful corridor, the man who was torn to pieces by the nameless race. For in the fiendish clawings of the swirling curtains, there seemed to abide a vindictive rage all the stronger because I was largely impotent. I think I screamed frantically nearer the last. I was almost mad. But if I did so, my cries were lost in the hellborn babble of the howling wind raids. 
try to crawl against the murderous invisible torrent, but I could not even hold my own as I was pushed slowly and inexorably towards the unknown world. Finally, reason must have wholly snapped, for I fell over babbling over and over the unexplainable couplet of the mad Arab Al-Hazred, who dreamed of the nameless city. That is not dead which can eternally lie, and with strange eons even death may die. Only the grim brooding desert gods know what really took place, what indescribable struggles and scrambles in the darks I endured, or what Abaddon guided me back to life, where I must always remember and shiver in the night wind till oblivion, or worse claims me. Monstrous, unnatural, colossal was the thing too far beyond all the ideas of man to be believed except in the silent, damnable small hours when one cannot sleep. I have said that the fury of the rushing blast was infernal. What the fuck? You gotta be shitting me with that one. What the hell is this thing? This great word just means a bad demon. It's from the Greek kakos and demon. Alright. Kako demonical. There we go. That's how that's how that's pronounced. Infernal. Kako demonical. And that its voices were hideous with pent-up viciousness of desolate eternities. Presently those voices, while still chaotic before me, seemed to my beating brain to take articulate form behind me. And down there in the grave of unnumbered aeon-dead antiquities, leagues below the dawnlit world of men, I heard the ghastly cursing and snarling of strange-tongued fiends. Turning, I saw outlined against the luminous aether of the abyss what could not be seen against the dusk of the corridor, a nightmare horde of rushing devils, hate-distorted, grotesquely panoplied, half-transparent devils of a race no man might mistake, the crawling reptiles of the nameless city. As the wind died away, I was plunged into the ghoul-people blackness of Earth and Earth's bowels. From behind, the last creature, the great brazen door, clanged shut with a deafening peal of metallic music, whose reverberations swelled out to the distant world to hail the rising sun as Mimon hails it from the banks of the Nile. And because I can't help myself, I wanted to tell a little bit of a story. Uh, a while back, I went to a pumpkin patch slash corn maze with a couple of friends of mine from work. We decided to visit this joint. Originally, the plan was to um, go to... Uh, what is it called? It's like Fright Fest at Wild Waves, like their spooky haunted house thingamajig. But I don't do well with actual creepy spooky shit. And uh, a couple of my friends don't either, so we decided this would be a fun fall alternative, getting out and doing something festive for the season, yet not actually being frightened or whatever. And so we head out to uh, this pumpkin patch. I think it's called like Bob's Farm, if I recall correctly. It had like this 12-acre corn maze. And uh, it was on and off raining like that whole week preceding this, and that day it was on and off rain. And I was like, oh, it's a little rain, you know, we'll put on some jackets, we'll be fine. It never once occurred to me that a side effect of the amount of rain that we had been receiving would be that the farm would be muddy. And boy, howdy was it. There were times when it like sunk up like a good couple inches up my boots, like just slick black brown mud. And we're like traipsing around the, the pumpkin patch looking at pumpkins and we're just every fucking step just squelching our way through the mud and we came away with a couple of pumpkins um, I personally only got one pumpkin uh, which I have sitting on my porch right now just uncarved I always like the look of the of the uncarved pumpkins like got some orange and white stripes it's kind of a tigery looking pumpkin I like it a lot 
and we got our pumpkins and it was a lot of like traipsing around we had a wheelbarrow just full of pumpkins and we went over and paid for the pumpkins and we washed the pumpkins and then in order for them to sit in the back of the car um at this point i'm just like dripping in sweat because of these heavy pumpkins um i sacrificed my raincoat to lay the back of the car and we put the pumpkins on that and then we went over to the actual farmhouse got some food uh then we hit the corn maze which the first half of it we did um without looking at the map and like basically following the trail um to a t and it took us about 30 to 45 minutes to hit the halfway point um and we were kind of chilling there for a bit and the rain was starting to pick up and we had to kind of mosey on back to the car to uh return back to this side of the world um because like i had a dog to feed and stuff like that and so we used the map for the second half and got out of there in like 10 minutes we blasted out of that maze and uh, it was a lot of fun it was a super cool day and i well i mean season's kind of dwindling on this by the time y'all hear um this episode of the podcast but hey you know what maybe next year y'all can check out uh bob's farm and check out their corn maze and pumpkin patch because it was super cool and it was very festive for the holiday season of halloween and i just wanted to share that story because it was a lot of fun and i had a blast but this next lovecraftian story is in my opinion the creepiest one of the four while we have touched on uh some kind of stories with lovecraftian dreams that he's had and the barest hint of the elder race touched on uh this next one for me is probably my favorite out of the lot i think it does a really great job of um telling of these unknowable horrors and uh the effect they can have so thank you very much for listening i hope you enjoy the fourth and final story and let's take a listen The Statement of Randolph Carter I repeat to you, gentlemen, that your inquisition is fruitless. Detain me here forever if you will. Confine or execute me if you must have a victim to to propitiate the illusion you call justice. But I can say no more than I have said already. Everything I can remember I have told with perfect candor. Nothing has been distorted or concealed, and if anything remains vague, it is only because of the dark cloud which has come over my mind. That cloud and the nebulous nature of the horrors which brought it upon me. Again, I say, I do not know what has become of Harley Warren, though I think, almost hope, that he is in peaceful oblivion, if there be anywhere so blessed a thing. It is true that I have been, I have for five years been his closest friend and a partial sharer of his terrible researches into the unknown. I will not deny, though my memory is uncertain and indistinct, that this witness of yours may have seen us together, as he says, on the Gainesville Pike walking towards Big Cypress Swamp at half past 11 on that awful night, that we bore electric lanterns, spades, and a curious coil of wire with attached instruments. I will even affirm, for these things all played a part in the single hideous scene which remains burned into my shaken recollection. But of what followed, and of the reason I was found alone and dazed on the edge of the swamp the next morning, I must insist that I know nothing save what I have told you over and over again. You say to me that there is nothing in the swamp, nor near it, which could form the setting of that frightful episode. I reply that I know nothing beyond what I saw vision or nightmare it may have been, 
Vision or nightmare, I fervently hope it was. Yet it is all my mind retains of what took place in those shocking hours after we left the sight of men, and why Harley Warren did not return, he or his shade, or some nameless thing I cannot describe, alone can tell. As I have said before, the weird studies of Harley Warren were well known to me, and to some extent shared by me. Of his vast collection of strange, rare books on forbidden subjects, I have read all that were written in the languages of which I am master. But there are few as compared with those in languages I cannot understand. Most, I believe, are in Arabic. In the fiend-inspired book which brought on the end, book which he carried in his pocket out of the world, was written in characters whose like I never saw elsewhere. Warren would never tell me just what was in that book. As to the nature of our studies, must I say again that I no longer retain full comprehension? It seems to me rather merciful that I do not, for they were terrible studies which I pursued more through reluctant fascination than through actual inclination. Warren always dominated me and sometimes I feared him. I remember how I shuddered at his facial expressions on the night before the awful happening, when he talked so incessantly of his theory, why certain corpses never decay, but rest firm and fat in their tombs for a thousand years. I do not fear him now, but I suspect that he has known horrors beyond my ken. Now I fear for him. Once more I say that I have no clear idea of our object on that night. Certainly it has much to do with something in the book which Warren carried with him. That ancient book and undecipherable characters which have come to him from India a month before. But I swear I do not know what it was that we expected to find. Your witness says he saw us at half past eleven on Gainesville Pike headed for Big Cypress Swamp. This is probably true, but I have no distinct memory of it. The picture seared into my soul is of one scene only, and the hour must have been long after midnight, for a waning crescent moon was high in the vaporous heavens. The place was an ancient cemetery, so ancient I trembled at the manifold signs of immemorial years. It was in a deep, damp hollow, overgrown with rank grass, moss, and curious creeping weeds, and filled with a vague stench, which my idle fancy associated absurdly with rotting stone. On every hand were the signs of neglect and decrepitude, and I seemed haunted by the notion that Warren and I were the first living creatures to invade a lethal silence of centuries. Over the valley's rim, a wane, waning crescent peered through the nauseum vapors that seemed to emanate from unheard-of catacombs. By its feeble, wavering beams, I could distinguish a repellent array of antique slabs, urns, cenotaphs, and mausoleum facades, all crumbling, moss-grown, and moisture-stained, and partially concealed by the gross luxuriousness of the unhealthy vegetation. My first vivid impression of my own presence in this terrible necropolis concerns the act of pausing with Warren before a certain half-obliterated sepulchral, sepulchral, um, and of throwing down some burdens, which seemed to have been, which we seemed to have been carrying. I now observed that I had with me an electric lantern and two spades, whilst my companion was supplied with a similar lantern and a portable telephone outfit. No word was uttered. For the spot in the task seemed known to us. And without delay, we seized our spades and commenced to clear away the grass, weed, and drifted earth from the flat, archaic mortuary. After uncovering the entire surface, which consisted of three immense granite slabs, we stepped back some distance to survey the carnal scene, and Warren appeared to make some mental calculations. He returned to the sepulchre, and using his spade as a lever, sought to pry up the slab nearest the to the stony ruin, which may have been a monument in its day. He did not succeed, and motioned to me to come to his assistance. 
Finally, our combined strength loosened to the stone, which we raised and tipped to one side. The removal of the slab revealed a black aperture, from, ru from which rushed an influence of miasmal gases so nauseous that we started back in horror. After an interval, however, we approached the pit again and found the exhalations less unbearable. Our lanterns disclosed the top of a flight of stone steps dripping with some detestable ichor of the inner earth and bordered by moist walls encrusted with nitrate. And now, for the first time in my memory, records verbal discourse, Warren addressing me at length in his mellow tenor voice, a voice singularly unperturbed by our awesome surroundings. Sorry to ask you to stay on the surface, he said, but it would be a crime to let anyone with your frail nerves go down there. You can't imagine, even from what you have read and what from what I have told you, the things I shall have to see and do. It's fiendish work, Carter, and I doubt if any man without ironclad sensibilities could ever see it through and come up alive and sane. I do not wish to offend you, and heaven knows I'd be glad enough to have you with me. But the responsibility is in a certain sense mine, and I couldn't drag a bundle of nerves like you down to probable death or madness. I tell you, you can't imagine what the thing is really like. But I promise to keep you informed over the telephone of every move. You see, I have enough wire here to reach to the center of the earth and back. I can still hear in memory those coolly spoken words, and I can still remember my, my remonstrances. I seemed desperately anxious to accompany my friend into those sepulchral depths, yet he proved inflexibly ob obdurate. At one time he threatened to abandon the expedition if I remained insistent, a threat which proved effective since he alone held the key to the thing. All this I can still remember, though I no longer know what manner of thing we sought. After he had secured my reluctant acquiescence in his design, Warren picked up the reel of wire and adjusted the instruments. At his nod, I took one of the latter, seated myself upon an aged, discolored gravestone close by the nearly uncovered aperture. He then shook my hand, soldiered the coil of wire, and disappeared within that indescribable ossuary. For a moment, I kept sight of the glow of his lantern and heard the rustle of wire as he laid it down after him, but the glow soon disappeared abruptly, as if a turn in the stone staircase had been encountered. The sound died away almost as quickly. I was alone yet bound to the unknown depths by those magic strands whose insulated surface lay green beneath the struggling beam of that waning crescent moon. In the lone silence of that hoary and deserted city of the dead, my mind conceived the most ghastly fantasies and illusions, and the grotesque shrines and monoliths seemed to assume a hideous personality, a half-sentience. Amorphous shadows seemed to lurk in the darker recesses of the weed-choked hollow and to flit, as in some blasphemous ceremonial procession, past the portals of the moldering tombs in the hillside, shadows which could not have been cast by that pallid, peering crescent moon. I constantly consulted my watch by the light of my electric lantern and listened with feverish anxiety at the receiver of the telephone, but for more than a quarter of an hour heard nothing. Then a faint clicking came from the instrument, and I was called down to my friend in a tense voice. Apprehensive as I was, I was nevertheless unprepared for the words which came up from that uncanny vault, in accents more alarmed and quivering than any I'd have heard from Harley Warren. He who so calmly left me a little while previously, now called below in a shaky whisper more portentous than the loudest shriek. Gods, if you could see what I am seeing. I could not answer. Speechless, I could only wait. Then came the frenzy toad again. Carter, it's terrible, monstrous, unbelievable. This time my voice did not fail me, and I poured into the transmitter a flood of excited questions. Terrified, I continued to repeat. 
Warren, what is it? What is it? Once more, the voice of my friend, still hoarse with fear, now apparently tinged with despair. I can't tell you, Carter. It's too utterly beyond thought. I dare not tell you. No man could know it and live. Great God, I never dreamed of this. Stillness again, save for my now incoherent torrent of shuddering inquiry. Then the voice of Warren in a pitch wilder consternation. Carter! For the love of God, put the slab back and get out of here if you can. Quick, leave everything else and make for the outside. It is your only chance. Do as I say and don't ask me to explain. I heard, yet was able only to repeat my frantic questions. Around me were the tombs in the darkness and the shadows. Below me, some peril beyond the radius of human imagination. But my friend was in greater danger than I, and through my fear I felt a vague resentment that he should deem me capable of deserting him under such circumstances. More clicking, and after a pause came the piteous cry from Warren. Beat it! For God's sakes, put the slab back and beat it, Carter! Something in the boyish slang of my evidently stricken companion unleashed my faculties. I formed and shouted a resolution. Warren! Brace up! I'm coming down! But at this offer, the tone of my auditor changed to a scream of utter despair. Don't! You can't understand. It's too late. My own fault. Put the slab back and run. There's nothing else you or anyone can do now. The tone changed again, this time requiring a softer quality as of hopelessness, resignation, yet it remained tense through anxiety for me. Quick! Before it's too late! I tried not to heed him. I tried to break through the paralysis which held me, and to fulfill my vow to rush to his aid, but his next whisper found me still held in inert in the chains of stark horror. Carter, hurry. It's no use. You must go. Better one than two. The slab! A pause, more clicking than the faint voice of Warren. Nearly over now. Don't make it hard. Cover up those damn steps and run for your life. You're losing time. So long, Carter. Won't see you again. Here, Warren's whisper swelled into a cry. A cry that gradually rose into a shriek fraught with all the horror of the ages. Curse these hellish things. Legions, by God. Beat it! Beat it! Beat it! After that was silence. I know not how many interminable eons I sat stupefied, whispering, muttering, calling, screaming into that telephone over and over again through the eons. I whispered and muttered, called, shouted, screamed, Warren! Warren, answer me! Are you there? And then came to me the crowning horror of all. The unbelievable, unthinkable, almost unmentionable thing. I have said that Eon seemed to elapse after Warren shrieked forth his last despairing warning. And that only my own cries now broke the hideous silence. But after a while there was further clicking in the receiver and I strained my ears to listen. Again I called down, Warren, are you there? And an answer heard the thing which had brought this cloud over my mind. I do not try, gentlemen, to account for that thing, that voice. Nor can I venture to describe it in detail, since the first words took away my consciousness and created a mental blank which reaches to the time of my awakening in the hospital. Shall I say that the voice was deep, hollow, gelatinous, remote? unearthly, inhuman, disembodied, what shall I say? It was the end of my experience, and is the end of my story. I heard it, and I knew no more. Heard it as I sat petrified in that unknown cemetery in the hollow, amidst the crumbling stones and the fallen tombs, and the rank vegetation and miasmal vapors. Heard it well from the innermost depths of that damnable open sepulchre, as I watched amorphous Necrophagious shadows danced beneath an accursed waning moon. And this is what it said. 
You fool. Warren is dead. Thank you very much for listening to me reading a handful of Lovecraftian tales as read to us from the new annotated HP Lovecraft, which is a monstrous tome. I hope you enjoyed those stories as much as I enjoyed reading them, and I wish you all a very happy Halloween. Until next time, everybody, have a good one.